Welcome to High Lawn Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening, and welcome back to our look at the rapture as we're heading into Revelation into the more hard prophetic text there in the book. But before we do anything else, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne, Lord, asking you this morning for, excuse me, this evening for your wisdom and for your guidance, please unstop our ears that we may hear directly from you and that we may, may understand the wisdom in these pages, so that as we seek to better understand, to better know your word for us and the hope that is within this precious teaching, Lord, empty us of ourselves, that we may approach your word with fresh eyes, guide our thoughts, shelter our hearts, and keep us going in this study, Lord, as we claim the blessing that you offer all those that study this precious book. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So we are in the last of three sessions talking about the rapture. And as we continue into uh, the other two background studies in the book of Daniel next time, we're going to construct a, a timeline based on what the Bible tells us about the sequence of events that move us from the rapture to the time of tribulation, to the judgment, and the bulls and the seals, and all the wonderful things that happen in the book of Revelation, some of which are very terrifying. But for right now, we're taking a look at the Bible's texts on the rapture, both the ascension of the Christians living of that day and the resurrection. So again, this is preparatory work for going into what the Apostle calls the things that will t take place after this. The word meditata, after these things. The third section of the book beginning with chapters 4 and moving into 22. So as always, this is your disclaimer where the Bible is telling you not to believe anything that I teach you. But that to search it out for yourselves. Ask questions. Dive into what the Bible says. And I guarantee you that you will be blessed for your efforts. Wherever things appear to be contradictory or confusing, take the time to get to understand this wonderful gift of God's grace. Don't take human instruction for granted as the truth, but search the Scriptures daily for yourselves. So, if you have your printable notes... I understand that this looks a lot better on them than, they, than it does on the screens here at church. Uh, but for those of you at home, I understand it's coming through just fine. So I will still read them to you. Part of the, the, the controversy surrounding a pre-tribulation view of the rapture is this idea, I think that it's a misunderstanding, that it didn't exist before the 1850s. So what you have on the screen right now is a commentary from ancient Christian sources 
This one in particular is from uh, St. Hilary of, of Poitiers, who died in 367 AD. And he's commenting on the book of Matthew, particularly the section about two people being in a field and one of them taken away, two women sitting on a grain mill and one of them is taken. And St. Hilary, again, this is a fourth century Christian, writes of that particular passage, this teaching means that the separation of the faithful from the unfaithful will consist in one being accepted and the other abandoned. For like the prophet says, and again we're talking about the prophet Isaiah, that comes to us from our last study, when the wrath of God rises, the saints will be hidden in God's chambers, but the faithless will be left exposed to celestial fire. So before the time of judgment, God will claim His own and shelter them away. This other writing comes to us from St. John Chrysostom, who also lived in the 4th century. And he writes uh, about 1 Thessalonians, about Paul's view of the rapture that we've also studied in previous sessions. If he is about to descend, meaning Christ, on what account shall we be caught up? For the sake of honor, meaning God's habit of keeping His promises. For when a king drives into a city, those who are in honor go out to meet him, but those who are condemned await the judgment within, hoping one would assume that he forgets about them before getting into the city. So there is, they might not have called it the rapture at this time, but the conversation of the Christian being the church being called up and taken out before the period of judgment, the period of tribulation, was certainly in place. So that's a null argument. For the rest of this session, we're going to take a look through the rest of the biblical literature on the rapture, and I'm going to leave it open to you to discover these things for yourselves. I will try to explain why I hold the view that I do over this session, just as I have the last two, but I want you to search the scriptures for yourselves, to ask questions, and to come up to your own solutions. Because this is one of those types of topics where good, God-fearing men of Christ don't agree. This is a confusing uh, set of scriptures if you don't know the whole Bible. I believe that the more of the Bible that you are literate in, the more clear they become. But because biblical literacy of late has taken such a nosedive, the book of Revelation all but requires that you know the book, the rest of the Bible from cover to cover. And if you don't, then it does get confusing. But again, I want you to understand why we believe what we believe. So let's take a look now in the book of Hosea. The book of Hosea. And we touched on this just a little bit in the last session. The offense of Israel. The prophet is talking to a crowd who's about ready to endure two sets of exiles. The exile of the northern kingdom and eventually the exile of the southern kingdom. The prophet writes, When Ephraim, meaning the northern kingdom, saw his sickness and Judah, the southern kingdom, his wound, Ephraim went to Assyria and sent a delegation to the great king, but he cannot cure or heal your wound. In other words, you can't solve a spiritual problem 
with a temporal power. You can't make politics solve the issues of your soul. For I am, speaking of God, I am like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. Now, we know from history, this is where that prophetic echo comes in. And what do I mean by that? The prophetic echo is the, the case that just because a prophet says something to an immediate audience doesn't mean that, it, that there's a truth only intended for that immediate audience. Many times a prophet says something that echoes through several generations. Many of the prophecies with regards to Christ's first coming are this way. They ostensibly have to do with something else. But when you look at them, Christ brings them to fulfillment. But in this case, we can tell that this next bit of this poetry has nothing to do with the immediate audience because God cannot depart Israel. God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob also has a covenantal relationship with the people of Israel, meaning that he will not leave nor forsake them. So how can God leave Israel? Yes, I will tear them to pieces and depart. I will carry them off and no one can rescue them. I will depart and return to my place until they recognize their guilt and seek my face. They will search for me in their distress. In some of your translations, when they acknowledge their offense instead of recognize their guilt. But God cannot physically leave Israel because He's omnipresent unless we're not talking about God the Father. The only way that the prophecy holds 100% merit is if we're talking about God the Son who did ascend after He Himself was persecuted, condemned on Calvary. So when we're talking about the day of the Lord as found as the Old Testament, what we're hearing in the words of this prophet and the works of Isaiah uh, is that Israel is the focus. That this will be an echo of other diaspora. That God through Christ will leave Israel's presence, which He has, but also that God in Christ will return upon Israel's repentance when they acknowledge their offense. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, talking about the wrath in the church. Part of the post-tribulation view of this is that the church will have to remain on the planet while the planet is going through the, the four horsemen and all the rest. But Paul writes something else to us. The apostle writes, For God did not appoint us to what? To wrath. God did not appoint the church, the believers, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep. This is not just talking about the souls of the departed here. This is talking about the condition of those in the last days. 
for those who are awake or asleep may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. So the church is exempt from God's wrath through the blood of Christ. But when we're talking about God's wrath here, we're not talking about God's correction. And we're not talking about a persecution that comes from others. We're talking about the tribulation that will befall the earth as part of the opening of the second seal, seven seals, excuse me, uh, as part of the ride of the four horsemen, as a part of the coming of the fifth horseman, who is the Messiah on the white horse, as he conquers the earth and returns it to its rightful ownership. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're also talking about God's view of reconciliation. How much more then, the apostle writes, since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, we will be saved through Him from wrath. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, are we saved by His, from his, excuse me, by his life? Meaning, you were saved the moment that you became a part of the body of Christ through repentance and confession. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. There's also that passage that tells us that uh, for faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We have been saved. We are being saved now through the process of sanctification as we're being conformed more and more to the image of His Son. But not only that, we have been sanctified, set apart, put into this wonderful new body of believers called the church, and we will be saved from His wrath during the final judgment. So this is a condition where God's hand of protection is over you right now from the wrath that He's going to pour out that's generated by the sin of an unbelieving and rebellious world. Are you with me so far? That's why you cannot go through, or rather why I believe, you are as the church... If you are in Christ, then you're exempted from what is to come. Because again, we're not talking about a, a tribulation brought about by man's desires to persecute the church. We're not talking about a tribulation that comes together because of life in a fallen world. We're talking when the great tribulation hits, it hits because God Himself will unleash all of His wrath built up over countless years based upon the sinful condition of, the, of a fallen creation Targeting those who are still in their sin, in their rebellion. But because you are not in that condition, because you have been saved through the blood of Christ, in my view, I'll, I'll disclaim it that way, based upon Scripture, you will not have to go through what the rest of the planet will. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received His reconciliation. The coming together of that which was in rebellion and the person that we were in rebellion against. So the church is in effect exempt from God's wrath through salvation. The church is the beneficiary of God's reconciliation. We are the part of the kingdom of God already. 
We are not citizens of this world. We just happen to be living in it the same way that an ambassador from another kingdom or another nation lives in foreign territory as a representative of the government that he's actually a citizen of. We are the agents of reconciliation, having been reconciled ourselves to the king. Wrath, therefore, is reserved only for the enemies of God. Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. We've already talked about this a little bit in the previous sessions, but one of the churches, and therefore one of the types of churches that we've talked about, uh, Jesus himself says that those who overcome, I will also keep you from the hour of testing or the hour of tribulation that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live upon the earth. You have an exemption. I am told that unlike my day in school, if you now get straight A's on a, in, 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 a, in classes in public education, you get to exempt out of finals. I didn't get that opportunity. And you could probably tell how I feel about that subject. Let's move on. But under Christ, remember, under Christ, kind of the same way that you have your report card in front of you with all of your grades listed, Christ has all A's. Your sin has been forgiven. His righteousness is now applied to your account, canceling out all of your debts. So just as the last period of testing, the last great tribulation, will come to, to ultimately try and condemn those who stand against the king of the universe. You will not endure that test. Second Peter chapter 2. The shelter of God. For if God didn't spare the angels who sinned, Incidentally, that's an interesting point of view right there. For we see that angels do go against the will of God. Unlike those that claim that Lucifer was actually following God's orders, we see here angels who sinned, rebelled, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others when he brought the flood on the world of the ungodly. And if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is to come to the ungodly, and if he rescued the righteous lot, distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral, for as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds that he saw and overheard. In other words, what Peter is saying is that if God threw all of these topics of wrath in because of the ungodliness that he was witnessing, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep, excuse me, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Every situation that the Apostle Peter just listed had a remnant survive because God himself sheltered that person or that group. 
He, he sent a tribulation. He sent a judgment down during the time of Noah, during Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent his judgment poured out upon those people. And yet every time he found a remnant, he found those after his own heart and he made sure that they were not swept up in his wrath, but he sheltered them from himself. Sin results in God's wrath. Anytime that you fall under temptation, I want you to remember that. Because as someone who has repented, we should all have repented. Sin from the ungodly, especially since, since they do not have this reconciliation upon them, sin results in generating a state of wrath between God and that person. God's judgment against sin is inescapable. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're actually going to see where the people who are the leaders of the earth run to the mountains and cry out, fall on us to save us from the wrath of the Lamb. You cannot escape God's judgment. God's judgment of sin is without mercy, with one exception. The mercy that He's shown you as the believer under the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He paid the debt that He didn't owe. A debt that we could not pay. So those who are declared righteous, meaning us, under Christ, because no one, there are no right, none that are righteous, no not, one. The Bible tells us those who declared righteous under Christ are sheltered by God from God. Luke chapter 21, the rescue of God. The voice of Jesus himself. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be on your guard so that your minds are not dulled from carousing drunkenness and worries of life. I want you to notice that he's not only lumping in sin in there, but he's also lumping in the attitude that we can often adopt as believers, where what we see here in the temporal outweighs our sight on what is eternal. Let me translate that into English. Sometimes as Christians, we can't see the forest for the trees. And we get so caught up in the things of this world, the problems, the politics, the economics, and so forth, that we forget who's ultimately in control. That's what he means by that. He's, he's putting in carousing and drunkenness that are, uh, that are sinful, but he's also putting in the worries of life. Worry, again, is, is antithetical to faith. Worry is a mild form of atheism. So keep our eyes on Christ. Do not let yourself become dulled by these things or that day, meaning the day of the Lord, will come on you unexpectedly like a trap for it will come on all without exception, all. Notice that, underline that, highlight it, put Christmas tree lights around it because when Christ says all, he means all. For it will come on all who live on the face of the whole earth, meaning that the church cannot be on the earth, but be alert at all times, praying 
that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The only way that you can escape is if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Period. So what Jesus is telling us in short order is do not become distracted by sin. Do not become distracted by temporal concerns. Do not let this world take your eyes off of Christ. Live as one longing to see the return of Jesus. But while you live in that state of hope, meet each and every day as an opportunity to do the work of ministry. How fantastic would it be for you to be the instrument that God uses to bring somebody to salvation. I want you to think about that for a second. Because there are some out there that believe that no matter what I do, if God's going to save them, God's going to save them. To that, I've got two things. Number one, if He's picked you to save that person and you don't do it, you're using an excuse in disobedience which is going to strain your relationship with God. And number two, you're missing out on being a, an eternal blessing to somebody else. How marvelous would it be to stand before the throne of grace one day and to have somebody hug your neck and say, thank you, you were the messenger. You're the reason I'm here. Keep that in mind. Meet each and every day as an opportunity to do ministry. And remember that Christ is our place of rescue. God's rescue of us from Himself, from His own wrath. This is one last ancient uh, Christian quote that I will give you. And it's got two attributions. It was a letter, several copies of which that were discovered that are attributed to two what would be considered today Eastern Orthodox saints. And this was way, way, way before the Great Schism. Uh, the, the latest date of this document places it in the 7th century, which the last time I checked my calendars was way before the mid-19th mid century. But whether it is St. Ephraim, or St. Isildur, whichever one. They write to us, All the saints and the elect of God are gathered together before the tribulation, the tribulation which is to come and are taken to the Lord in order that they may not see at any time the confusion which overwhelms the world because of our sin. For someone who apparently didn't know a pre-tribulation rapture, it certainly sounds like they knew about a pre-tribulation rapture. And that's the basis of it in a nutshell. Before the world is consumed by God's judgment, God will shelter the church in Himself. Before we continue on to Daniel, what I'd like to do is take an opportunity now to give you a, an insight as to why Daniel's prophecy is so important. 
before we move on with the rest of the black and white of Revelation. It's quoted in the New Testament by Jesus himself. He's referencing Daniel chapter 9, what we call Daniel's 70 weeks. 69 weeks that cover the period up until Christ. In fact, if you do the math, Daniel himself through a, a vision given to him by the angel Gabriel identifies Christ uh, during the triumphal entry to the day. And after that 69 weeks of years, there is a, a parenthesis, there is a, a, a space which we call the church age. And then the 70th week, these are 70 non-contiguous groups of years. The 70th week incorporates what John sees in the fulfillment that we call the book of Revelation. So part of why we're going to study it is so that we understand what John is taking for granted that you already know. To have a better understanding of it. But this is Jesus commenting on what we're about to study in a, a private teaching that he's having with his closest disciples in what we call in Matthew chapter 4, the Olivet Discourse. Now, both chapters 24 and 25 of the Gospel according to Matthew have both this question and answer period, and Jesus also gives some parables telling them about what the day of the Lord will be like in, in his coming judgment. So over the course of between this week and next week, part of what I would like for you to have in your mind ready to go when we start discussing it is Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Why Matthew? I want to give uh, our departed friend, the apostle here, a little bit of a plug when it comes to researching him. Matthew is unique among the four Gospels. Now, literary criticism, that means that people who are literature experts that try to pick apart the Bible to better understand it through the art of literature, suggest that the Gospel according to Mark was written first, and then Matthew was copied from it and expounded upon, and then Luke did the same thing, and then John was just kind of crazy. But... Matthew was an interesting person. He's not spoken of a whole lot in Scripture. But the person who used to be the customs agent from Rome called Levi, who became and was renamed by Jesus himself Matthew, which means gift of God. Matthew, because of his, his livelihood, was multilingual. In order to be a tax collector... Uh, Rome used to do something called tax farming, meaning that they had natives in the land that they had conquered doing the dirty work for them. And in the case of Israel, to be someone who was a Roman official, even though you were a Jew, meant that you were now no longer a Jew in their own eyes. You were a sympathizer with the oppressor. You were unkosher yourself. You might as well be a Gentile. You were shunned. But... Nevertheless, this guy was called by Christ himself. We read about his story when, during our sermon series, looking through the book of Luke. But one of the things that I really want you to appreciate about his gospel is the fact that 
He was multilingual. In order to do what he did for a living, you had to speak Greek as the trade language, kind of the way that English is a trade language today. No matter what country you go to, you can almost always bump into somebody that speaks English, especially in commercial centers. He had to speak Aramaic, which was the common local regional dialect of that day. He had to speak Hebrew, at least in part, because everyone who grew up in a synagogue did. They, uh, Hebrew to them at that time was similar to the way that Latin is to somebody who's a Roman Catholic right now. If you went to a Catholic school, you had to at least know a little bit of Latin to get through it. That's the way it was with Hebrew in the synagogues. And he had to know Latin because he was writing reports in the Roman legal language. So he was multilingual, but not only that, as a tax collector, he would have to know shorthand stenography. He would have to be able to pin down what was being spoken of around him to keep meticulous records. So part of the reason that the gospel according to Matthew is as long as it is, there are many believe, is because Matthew was actually able to take verbatim accounts while he was sitting at the feet of Christ of the teachings of Christ. Which is one of the reasons when I quote Christ, normally I'll default all the way over to Matthew because he gives a full account of the words that Jesus uses. So with that out of the way, Matthew chapter 24. And I've given you extra space in your notes to take down not only what I've put in there, but what also you notice as we read through the Scriptures. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said again, this, this is a private discussion with him and his inner, inner group. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They're talking about his second coming. Jesus replied to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. In my own day, David Koresh comes to mind. There are many that are going to say, Christ sent me. Or even have the audacity to say, I am Christ. Watch out that no one deceives you. They will say, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed because these things must take place, but the end is not yet. I keep hearing people quote, misquoting the scripture as if to say, because things are ramping up politically all over the world, it must mean the end times are near. Well, Jesus himself says that's not the case. There will always be political strife. There will always be wars. As long as the church exists, it's going to have to put up with all of these things. He gives a lot of this section telling us what not to expect, or excuse me, what to expect that doesn't give an indication of the end times. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. But all these things are the beginning of labor pains, meaning there's going to be lots of natural disasters and all these things happening. But no, it's not the end. Then they will hand you over to be persecuted and they will kill you. You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Then many will fall away, betray one another, 
and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And again, this is him talking about these are not signs. These are things that you're going to put up with as long as the church is on the earth. Because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will go cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. All of this is like an expectant mother waiting to the day that things, that the child is ready to appear. But it's things that you will have to keep putting up with until the day comes. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the church is called to minister during political strife in times of war. It is going to minister during the rise of false prophets, false teachers, false messiahs. It will minister during periods of intense natural disasters. It will minister in times of spiritual intolerance and persecution. It will minister during, hum during times when human nature itself loses even the very appearance of godly influence. Now what do I mean by that? When Jesus says that their love will grow cold, there was a time not too long ago that even people who didn't regularly attended church thought that Jesus had the right idea about a few things. And now it's almost like they're doing everything they can to be completely opposite of whatever he taught. The world itself, even, even in Jesus' day, even with the fallen, rebellious, and paganistic cultures around him, there were still some things that they held to be true that coincided with the biblical ethic. The sanctity of the unborn comes to mind. But anyway, human nature, what Jesus is saying, even, even in the fallen state of man, our fallenness is going to come to the forefront and the costuming we had done up to this point to at least vaguely resemble the ethics of God is going to fall away. And depravity will become more and more intense. But the redeemed will endure. And he goes on. This is the indicator. When you see, not hear about, not read about, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and the apostle writes this footnote, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains a man on the housetop but must not come down to get the things out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. This is the indicator that judgment is on its way. And for those living in Palestine, for those living in Israel at this point in history, when you see this happen, 
run for shelter as quickly as you can. The words translated as abomination of desolation, abomination referring to an idol, and an idol that is so heinous that it makes a temple desolate of the presence of God. The abomination that makes desolate, more literally. So when you see an idol put in the Holy of Holies, in a temple standing in Jerusalem, an abomination being in the place of the Ark of the Covenant, being in the place where God Himself is only supposed to have His presence, the place where only one human being on the planet can enter one day out of the year with extreme ceremonial preparation. When you see an idol put in the place of where the Ark of the Covenant itself should be, a place that makes a temple void of God's very presence, then you'll know the time is here. And when you see it, run for the hills if you're in Jerusalem, if you're in Judea. Take shelter wherever you can. Don't be in the city. So Jesus is using this, referring back to the, uh, the prophet Daniel, as the indicator that judgment of, the judgment of God is about ready to be poured out. Now again, it's my belief that the church will be called out before this takes place. But I'll ask you something. The temple itself, the temple proper, is made up of only two rooms. Now there are temple precincts surrounding those two rooms, but the pattern of the building of the temple itself has only two rooms. The building, like most American churches, are divided into, is divided into thirds. Two-thirds for the holy place, which is where the menorah, the seven-headed lampstand, where the table of showbread, where the incense altar, and uh, I think that's all the furniture for there, where that is located and where the priests, all the priests come in to, um, to fellowship together in God's presence. But one-third of the building, a perfect cube, is left for just the Ark of the Covenant, which is the footstool of the throne of God, treated in Scripture. And that room is called the what? The Holy of Holies. So, given that the temple is enclosed, how will you see if the abomination is put in place? YouTube is probably a good choice. I'm being glib, but the point of fact is that whatever happens, this is something that's not going to be in secret. This is going to be very overt. This is going to be a big political deal broadcast across the planet that the person, whoever is in charge at that time, is going to have basically a statue of themselves or some other figure in their image made, it's going to position them in the place of God in God's own house, and is going to make a huge and tremendous deal out of it. This is not covert, this is extremely overt. This is not something that will be done in secret. This has only happened a couple of times in Scripture before. Well, actually, in, in the second going into third temple period, 
Um, there, there was a huge to do in the books of the Kings and the books of Chronicles, but um, most of those were reserved out in the courtyard or were put in the holy places where they should never have been in the first place anyway. But in 167 B.C., the Ptolemies of Egypt and the Seleucids uh, over in Persia wanted to Hellenize the land of Israel. They wanted, in other words, to make it more Greek, more cultured, more civilized as they saw it. So they tried to bring some of the Greek pantheon into the temple. This resulted in a statue of Zeus being erected in the temple precincts and pigs being sacrificed on the altar to him. You can imagine how the Jews reacted to this. That abomination in the temple was the reason behind the Maccabean rebellion, which takes place in what we glibly call the, uh, the silent period, which wasn't actually very silent. Daniel even talks about it. A group of priests under the same family rises up and leads a rebellion which makes Israel free of outside rule for the first time in several hundred years. In fact, the Jews to this day celebrate the rededication of the temple from this particular abomination in a non-biblical, uh, well, non-biblical in the sense that it's not found in the Bible, not that it's anti-Bible, but a non-scripture-based, I should say, festival that we call Hanukkah. Jesus himself would have celebrated Hanukkah. The Festival of Lights. The second time that an abomination almost entered the temple was a statue that Caligula wanted to have put up of himself in the Holy of Holies. But a Roman governor was wise enough to understand what was going on. He was surrounded by many of his Jewish friends in the area that he was overseeing in, in Persia, Palestine, and so forth. And, and he came to the understanding that Maybe I need to let Caligula think about this one for a little while. When, when the procurator of Rome at the time, uh, Agrippa I, in Israel, found out that this was about to happen, it's, it's said, uh, I believe that was in the, in the works of Flavius Josephus, that he actually had a stroke. And he had to call in a favor, a huge favor from the emperor to get him to back off. And were it not for both his influence and that general's procrastination, there could have been an abomination that desolates placed inside the temple at that point. Fortunately, it never got to there. But something else I want you to take account of is the fact that right now that there is no temple to be made desolate. In order for this to happen, a third temple has to be built because the temple that was built and restructured by Herod was destroyed by Titus I in 70 AD. So before what Jesus is proclaiming here can come to pass, a third temple has to be built in Jerusalem. A world leader must place at some point in time, must turn his back on his own treaty, and must place a statue an idol inside the temple's holy of holies. Anyway, moving on with the scripture. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your escape may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. So Jesus is not talking 
to the church filled with Gentiles here, who's his audience when he's saying these things? He's talking to Jews living in Jerusalem during the time when this happens. For at that time there will be great distress, the kind that, the, that, has, that hasn't taken place from the beginning of the world until now and never will again. The great tribulation. Unless those days were cut short, no one would be saved. But those days will be cut short because of the elect. Even if anyone tells you then, see here is the Messiah, or over there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Take note, I have told you this in advance so that they can tell you, See, he's in the wilderness, or go out. See, he's in the storerooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Whoever, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not shed its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the very powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn. The church will not mourn the coming of its King. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet. They will gather His elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. So the short of what Jesus is saying in this passage, Israel is going to be the flashpoint. When the seals begin to open, it's Israel that will be ground zero for what is about to happen. That's why Jesus is saying, if any of you see this, this is your warning. An idol will be set up inside the temple in the Holy of Holies. God's judgment will begin in Jerusalem. An unimaginable catastrophe will begin in those days. God, however, will limit who is impacted and the degree, the length of time that the impact will take place. Because those who would ordinarily be, there are those that will be exempted from the wrath of God. And I hope I've proven that case for you. That if you're in Christ, one thing that we do not have to fear is the wrath of God. For his wrath is only reserved for those in rebellion against him. God's judgment will not be in secret. When Christ comes, Jesus describes this coming as being able to see peals of lightning that happen in the east, you can see it in the west. In other words, when the day of Christ, when the day of the Lord takes place, you won't have to guess about it. So when a false prophet tells you that a false Messiah is over here, or over there, or over the other place, don't believe it because when he comes, you'll see it. Every eye will see him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no David Koresh's. There will be no false messiahs because you will see him. 
There will be no question. There will be no whispering. There will be no murmuring. It will be loud. It will be violent. It will be unmistakable. All who remain, those that claim the citizenship of the earth rather than of heaven, will mourn. The church will be gathered and will be sheltered. Ultimately, this is the rapture in a nutshell. So, as we're getting ready to get into the timeline of the church and of Revelation, please take a look at Matthew 24 and 25. Please take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 9. And I realize that that's more than what I usually ask you to read. Please, at minimum, have Daniel 9 fresh in your minds for our next session. Remember that these passages all concern themselves with the day, the day of God's wrath, the day of the vengeance of our God, the day of the Lord. I want you to think about journaling what your thoughts, what your personal thoughts are regarding the return of Christ. I pray that this is something, that the return of Christ, that the gathering of the church is something that you're looking forward to, that you're anticipating. That while we walk, while we work, we're still watching. Take a moment. Remember, please take a moment. Get on the horn with whoever is in your groups and talk about these things together. And please remember to remember to journal them down as we're walking through Revelation. So, with that being said. The rest of the outline looks a little like this. We've just completed a three-part study in the rapture. We're going to be looking at the two, two background studies in Daniel chapter 9. And after that, we'll be back in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. All right. Any questions? Anything that struck you about this passage, these passages that we went over? Yeah. The, the question was, are there those that teach that the church will not see a rapture or will see God's wrath? The answer is yes. There is... Uh, if, if I had to classify what, what I believe and what I teach, it would be a pre-tribulation rapture. Meaning that because of what we just read, I believe... And again, I'll leave it up to you to decide what you believe. But based on my understanding of Scripture is that the church, those that are called by Christ, those who are, are repentant of their sins and, and are in Him, the body of Christ, will be removed, will be resurrected, will be um, taken to Him before the outpouring of God's wrath, before the tribulation hits. But there are those that believe that the church will be on earth all the way through it that we will be in the period of judgment as the earth is being ground during the removal of the seven seals, that all of the, everything that is poured out, we will go through post-tribulation. Uh, and there are those called amillennialists that believe that the book of Revelation is just allegorical, that there are spiritual truths within it, but nothing practical. 
that uh, it's all a story that teaches an ethical truth or that primes us for a spiritual reality that we can't know in the physical reality. It's where we get the phrase that Jesus is the king in your heart or that he's a spiritual king that kind of divorces the idea that Jesus is promised the throne of his father David and that he will bodily return to the earth. And it's, it's a teaching that's very common in Catholic circles, in Eastern Orthodox circles, and in the, the churches, the denominations that are usually that are one step removed from that, like the Anglican Communion, um, the, the United Methodists, the um, uh, many in the, uh, the Lutheran circles and in the, the immediate Reformed denominations uh, teach that it's a story. It has a spiritual significance, but it's a story about a kingdom that is not of this world. Does that answer your question? So there, there are a lot of, of questions about this, a lot of different ways of looking at it. Um, and as I said um, from last week, a lot of it has to do with the politics of the early Roman church. The, um, when during the time of, uh, I believe it was the emperor uh, Theodosius who, who uh, probably got that wrong, but who legalized, who not only legalized Christianity, that was Constantine, but when he made it a state religion, it became very hard for people of that day to start telling the people that was signing their paychecks that incidentally Christ is going to come back and he's going to find you as a despot and kick you out of your throne and he's going to sit in it. So a lot of this stuff went from being, like we read in the 4th century especially, there was a lot of people that might not have said the word rapture in reference to this, but this is what they were thinking. Rapture being a Latin word, found it in the Vulgate Bible, the, the Roman Catholic Bible. Greek word arpazo, which is the base text for every Bible. So there's a lot of reasons, and, and again, a lot of them are good scholars who, who think post-tribulation stuff. Some who think, uh, I'll just say that there's a lot of hard feelings about this, and there's a lot of misconceptions that have been out there. I believe that there's one person um, who was also in one of my churches from years back, I can't remember her name, but made the comment that when we were studying about heaven coming, uh, or excuse me, the New Jerusalem coming out of heaven like a bride, excuse me, a bride prepared for her groom, that we're going to get to later on in the book of Revelation. I think that's chapter 20, if I'm not too mistaken. Um, she was like, I thought we were just going to have wings and, and sit on clouds and play harps all day. This doesn't sound right. You know, there's, there's a lot of theology that we accidentally picks up, picked up from Bugs Bunny cartoons. Which is why it's imperative that you as believers know your Bible. This is a hope that Christ himself is putting together just for you. That one day, when he comes back to claim his inheritance, which is the throne of David, 
promised to him through his mother by the angel Gabriel, when he returns in everything that it's going to take for him to be able to claim the throne, you will not have to go through it. You will be positioned to be in places of authority in a kingdom that not only spans heaven, but will one day be reconciled with the earth as well. As the empire of our God is fully reconciled, the natural and the supernatural, both one, never to be separated again. No more sin, no more injustice, no more loss, no more death, no more danger of souls going to hell. Everything in direct communion and fellowship Everyone in direct communion and fellowship with God. Amen? I'm sorry I didn't mean to launch into a sermon just then. But anyway, I see that our time has passed. So let's bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks and praise for being a God who does love us enough to shelter us in the wings of your mercy and protect us both from the dangers of this world and from the the crossfire in the coming battle. Lord, we give ourselves in these hours to you without any reservation in the hope that your wisdom and your love would be made proclaimed to those who need to hear it so that they can take heart that in the midst of our trials, in the midst of a world that doesn't want to hear the gospel message in the midst of so many problems, Lord, that you are still in control and that you have still provided us with a means of blessing just to know you are king, just to know we are your children and you will not leave nor forsake us. So help us now to make these words part of us, to live in the certain hope and peace that you provide, because we know that no matter the trial, no matter the heartache, Lord, to know that your love is paramount above all. So bless us now as we claim that blessing promised by those who study this book. In the most holy name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.